0: Uh, starting a new series. It's called The Bible in Four, The Story. We're looking at the big story of the Bible. And the goal is that we're going to cover the whole Bible and make sense of the whole Bible over four weeks. Actually, in a way, we're going to do it four times. And you might say that's impossible. There's no way that we can do that. The Bible is a huge book, right? In fact, it's 66 books. 66 books written by about 40 different authors in three languages uh, over a course of a couple of thousand years on three continents. And they didn't know, most of them did not know they were writing to be included in this. So how is it possible that there even is a story, let alone that we can cover it? Well, actually, the amazing thing that we discover when we start getting into the Bible, and really this is going to be an invitation, a four-week invitation, to get your Bible open and to read it and and to get, uh, get, kind of let it flow through you. uh, The the thing that we discover is that even with all the diversity of authors and languages and, and all that stuff, it's been translated into English. Praise the Lord. And we have it, and what we discover as we read it is that this is not some kind of mishmash. This isn't just some kind of eclectic collection of religious writings, but actually this has a coherent story. Because as the people were writing, God was working through them. He was, a technical term, he was superintending the whole process, so that the product that they wrote, the end product, in its original language, in its original text, is absolutely perfect. It is exactly what God wanted us to have. Now, what we have is a translation of that, and we are so blessed to have a good translation. In fact, we have many good translations from the original language straight into English. Don't fall for the thing that people say, that when something's been translated thousands of times, like the Bible, there must be problems with it. That's true. If things have been translated thousands of times, like Chinese whispers, messages will change. But the the Bible has been translated once, from its original languages into English. And what we're going to do over these four weeks is we're going to think about the story really in four parts. And I'll just give you an overview, very simple. There's the promise, there's the preparation, there's the proposal, and there's the party. Okay, now you've got the story of the Bible, and we're going to go through that, but instead of just taking one per week and kind of you know, needing to get all four, we're going to emphasize one each week, but we're going to see the whole story four times. So today we're going to spend more energy and more time in the first part, but we're going to trace it right the way through the Bible. And hopefully what will happen as we do that is, is that we will get layer upon layer without becoming complex or, or you know, confused. Hopefully there'll just be a sense of, oh, I kind of get the story. So that as you're reading through the Bible, you can enjoy it perhaps more than when you feel like you're sort of uh, you know, uh, trekking through the weeds and not sure what's going on. So that's the plan. We're going to start, funnily enough, at the beginning. If you want to grab a Bible, you can. Don't feel that you have to follow and kind of look up every reference. We'll we'll mention a few as we go. What I'll do is I'll produce an outline with all the references on it, and I will send that with the church email. So if you don't get the church emails and you want the outline, give me your email address afterwards. So that I I don't want you kind of trying to keep it all in mind. I want you to, to feel the big picture. Okay, and also, if you don't have a Bible at home, just take one of these from the table. We will not mind. We will just replace it. Okay, we want you to have a Bible. So right at the beginning, at the beginning of the Bible, page 1, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, I mean, everything about it is one. right? So right at the beginning, we're going to just see what, what, what begins the story. Because as it begins, we discover that there is uh, an amazing plan in place. So Genesis 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God made everything. And as you read on through that chapter and into the next chapter, it describes kind of the process. The process actually was quite simple. God said it, it happened. Okay, so that's quite, quite straightforward. But, but there's, a, there's an order to it. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and, and it was good. And uh, he separated the light from the darkness, the day and the night, and and that was the first day. And then he separated the the skies above from the skies below. He separated the the waters from the land. And so over the course of those first three days, there was a kind of a, a setting of the stage. And then we get the next three days, and what happens there is that God's generosity just kind of overflows, fills the sky with stars and galaxies and planets more i mean even today we're inventing new telescopes in order to discover what god put there all that time ago all the stars all the diversity they're all different apparently and we can barely even see them And then all the fish of the seas and all the the, the animals and the creatures that swim in the seas and all the birds of the air from the pterodactyl to the budgie. He created it all and it was abundant and it was generous. And he created all the land animals, all the, the farmyard animals and all the wild animals and the creepy crawlies from the ants to the elephant, right? There's just incredible diversity from the golden retriever to the goldfish. And God created the whole thing and it was generous, generous, generous. And it was all building up to the point where he created the pinnacle of his creation. And that is mankind, humans. And we'll read about that in just a second. But I want to give us one word to really get our thoughts about God rooted, I think, in the right place. One simple four-letter word that if we get this in mind, we are starting in exactly the right place for who our God is. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, it's going to be love. It's always love. Nope, not going with love. Not going with holy. I'll tell you the word that I'm going to go with. The the one four-letter word that I want us to have absolutely seared into our souls today to get a sense of the story of the Bible. It's the word give. God is a giving God. God. It's easy to look at the the account of creation and and be amazed by God's power. And of course, that was incredible power. But it was incredible generosity too. He gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. And if God wasn't a giving God, we wouldn't have had the creation. And so when we get through to the end of the first chapter and we get the introduction of humanity, let me read the words to you because this is uh, really... It's astonishing. If, if we were literally starting from scratch, something would jump off the page at us here. Then God said, let us, there it is, us, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's this us? Why is God speaking and saying us and our? Why is it that that humans are created in the image of God, male and female? Why not just one? Well, it would make sense if if God was was pure oneness, if God was a lonely God, that he would create a creature that reflected that. But God is not a lonely God, because as we go on through the Bible, what is implicit in chapter 1, actually back in verse 2 we're told about the Spirit, but what is implicit in chapter 1 gets gradually revealed to us, and we discover that God is not pure one, alone, but he is three and yet he is one. That's where the, you know, Christianity gets slightly complicated. That God is three in the sense that there is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and the three are in this perfect loving relationship. There's a, a tightness and a closeness, and it's marked by giving. The Father giving glory to the Son because he loves him. The Son giving glory to the Father because he loves him. The the love and the givingness of God, if you like, existed before there was any creation, and it's the very reason there was a creation. And so God, out of the the giving nature that he has, overflowed in the generosity of creation. And at the pinnacle of creation, he created humanity, male and female, so that they could be united together, so that they could be uh, completely connected and one, and yet, distinct from each other. It's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture that represents God, that we, each of us, as individuals, we reflect God's nature because we, too, are relational like He is. And especially when you have a wife expressing respect and love for a husband, there, there's an even greater picture there. All of us reflecting the image of God, as you go into chapter 2, you get a little bit more detail. There's Adam, the first man, and he's naming the animals. And there's a pair of sheep and a pair of giraffes and a pair of donkeys and a pair of whatever's. And he's naming them. And after a while, it becomes painfully obvious that each one has its companion. But he's alone. And for the first time in the whole account of creation, God says, it is not good. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. All the way through, it's been good. And then he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he put Adam to sleep, took a rib out, formed and fashioned Eve, brought Eve to Adam. And that is the high point. That is the finale, the the, the real climax of the creation story. When Adam lays eyes on his bride, he is blown away. She is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I mean, she's come from man, so let's call her woman. And he's just, he can't even find words for it. He's so amazed. And it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. The pinnacle of God's creation is a man and a woman united together, the spirit of God uniting them with one another and communicating between them and God so that they can have a delightful relationship with God. And and here's the thing. If we grasp the significance of the first two chapters of the Bible, it will affect every single day of our lives. It's God's design for us to be in this world. When people get the idea that Christianity is all about floating on clouds for eternity with angels and harps, that's a little bit weird because the Bible doesn't give us that. The Bible says that God's plan is for us to be on the earth. It's God's plan for us to uh, to enjoy creation and to look after creation. It's God's plan for us to be in charge of it in a good way. The animals had no problem with somebody made in the image of God being uh, sort of God's representative over them. They were barking and yapping and celebrating that there was someone who would reflect the generosity of the giving God to be in charge. And so when we take care of creation, when we go to work, there's an implicit value in that. When we raise our children, when we do the mundane things like cutting the grass, all the stuff of life has implicit value because God created this world and he put us in it to care for it, to work in it, and to do so in the context of relationships, friendships, marriage, uh, the, the family relationships. That's part of the design. And it's all part of the design to do that in relationship with him. And once you put those pieces in place, you have a beautiful and a satisfying and a perfect picture. God's plan was rich and it was full. And it was for us to enjoy him and to enjoy everything that he gave because he's a giving God. And because he's a giving God, therefore there's a creation. But then comes a problem. The Bible, uh, Ron, my my friend, says, uh, our friend, he says, you know, the Bible is the most ungodly book. Two chapters of perfect and the rest is full of sin. Kind of true, isn't it? From chapter 3 onwards, everything is corrupted. Everything gets messed up. And so instead of being in relationship with God and relationship with each other and in a healthy relationship, if that's the right word, with creation, instead of that, suddenly humanity is completely messed with. And this is why we need to live every day in light of Genesis 1 and 2, pausing and looking at the stars, looking at the the beauty of creation, enjoying work, if we can manage that, enjoying one another, enjoying the fullness of what God's given us. But if we're going to make sense of why it's not always thrilling then we need to remember Genesis 3, because that's where sin entered into the story. When sin came in, it corrupted everything. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. Genesis chapter 3, first verse says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You might say, well, how? <laughs> if it's perfect, where did, where did the serpent come from? Well, I keep reading through the Bible, eventually you get to a book called Ezekiel, and right in the middle of that it explains how this angel that was right in the presence of God suddenly started looking at himself and was captivated by himself and became a a rebel against God. And so here he comes to introduce rebellion to humanity. And so there's Eve in the garden, and, uh, and uh, everything's wonderful. There's an abundance of fruit trees. There's a lovely husband. Everything's great. And the serpent comes in and says, did God really say? And she gets engaged in this conversation about what God had actually said. And instead of what God had said, now her attention is diverted and distracted. She's drawn to this tree, the one tree that God said, don't eat from that. If you eat from that, in that day you will die. And now she's looking at it. And the serpent draws her in. God didn't really mean that. You can't trust him. You, you don't, don't believe what he says. Believe what I say. After all, look at me. I'm alive and I'm on the other side. And, and she got drawn in and she looked at the tree and she looked at the fruit and she, she liked what she saw. She was attracted. Because it's not so much the fruit that was the, the ultimate desire. It was the desire that was offered by the serpent. You can be like God. Instead of being reliant on him and in this kind of weird situation, relationship. Instead, you can be independent and you can do your own thing. You can make up your own mind. You can choose your own rules. You can decide what's best for you. Wouldn't it be better to be the center of the universe instead of just a little human? And she was drawn in and it says she was deceived. And she took the fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. And in that moment, their eyes were opened, and they were naked, and they were ashamed, and they started to hide themselves. Everything went wrong. They thought they were going to get godlikeness, And instead, they got nakedness, and inadequacy, and broken relationships, and death. God said that in the day you eat of it, you will die. They thought, no, we won't. And they took it, and they died just like that. Now, they didn't die physically. That, they lasted for quite a long time, although it was downhill. But they died in that moment spiritually because the Spirit of God, who had been there in their midst, withdrew. And their hearts turned to ice as far as God was concerned. They became dead, stony hearted toward him. They felt guilty. And so the combination of guilt and stone hearts and the loss of the spirit, suddenly they're hiding. Trying to to cover up so that no one could see. So they couldn't see each other. It's embarrassing. I don't want you to see me. And God came walking into the garden and they hid behind the trees. And you know what? For the last thousands and thousands of years, every single one of us is living in light of that. When we're conceived, when we're born into this world, we're born dead. That's why we don't have an automatic relationship with God. He seems distant and uninvolved. It's why we struggle to have relationships with each other. We, if, I, if I let you know about the real me, you'll hate me. Who was that? I? Was, I heard recently somebody who gave this really grand introduction to a famous preacher. And he came up and he said, if you could see inside of me, you would spit in my face. Which I thought was kind of a cool line for the start of a sermon. But, but that's the truth, isn't it? That all of us feel that way. That if I let the real me show, no one will love me. And so we put on an act. So we we put on our best, not just our best clothes, but our best act to say, I've got it together. I'm cool. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that too. No, that's fine. I knew that as well. And we act like everything is together, but actually on the inside, we're dead unless we're given life from God. There's a deadness to life. There's a kind of a zombiness that God seems distant and life seems frustrating and work seems futile. And everything seems to fall short of what it could be or should be. That was the problem. And I suppose the question then is, if you were God, which you're not, if you were God, what would you do? If you had just given from yourself to the, not just given to creation, you'd given creation, and you'd put the man and the woman right at the center of it, and you'd given them everything they could possibly need, and all you, all you desire and all you ask is that from free hearts, they love you back. You don't force it. You can never force love. That's why the tree was there that they shouldn't have eaten from. God doesn't force it. The moment you take someone captive and lock the door and treat them as a spouse, it's never treated as a relationship. It's treated as a crime, isn't it? It's wrong to do that. And God is a gentleman. And so God gave everything that he could to these humans uh, to invite them into the richness of his own relationship and they spurned it they shook their faces in his uh, fists in his face and they they were just we don't want you we want to be god we don't want you we want your position we don't want you we want your stuff and if you were god what would you do I- I kind of think if if I was God, my gut reaction would be the same as it is when my computer refuses to follow my instructions. You know, I've got this computer that has been a wonderful servant for four or five years, but recently it's starting to have some issues. And so I can say something very simple like, please open my email. And then it goes into this frozen state of rebellion against me. And I'm like, after all I've done for it. And and so it just sits there and mocks me with this little spinny thing. Uh, And you know what I do? press the power button and I reboot, <laughs> I win. I'm in charge and I am going to get you to start again because that is not the way you're going to act, right? And if you were God, wouldn't you have done that for Adam and Eve? After everything I've given you, you've shaken your fist in my face. You've dared to claim my throne and my position. You've mocked me. You've, 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 you've treated me as if I'm nothing. Uh, and, and so I'm just going to wipe it out. I'm just going to start again. And here's the amazing thing that, that I want us to think about today. As you read through the Bible, you'll discover that time and time and time again, when sin just grows and grows and kind of belches out towards God in the most hideous way, he leans forward. And instead of, instead of wiping it out, instead of destroying, he leans forward and he gives. Because that's his nature. He gives promise. The sin grows, he gives promise. The sin grows some more, he gives more promise. God not only had a wonderful plan, but he was willing to do whatever it took to achieve it. Whatever it takes for men and women to be in relationship with him from free hearts loving him. But the problem is that we're born with hearts that are completely self-absorbed. I am the center of the universe. I am the captain of my destiny. I am the master of whatever's going on around me. And God says, you know what, I can take care of that. And I wonder if the serpent laughed. I wonder if the serpent laughed when when God declared his plan, because it comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is where sin has has just really come up and uh, slapped God in the face. And his response, in the midst of all that he says, he speaks to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity, that is animosity, between you and the woman. Between your offspring, I'm going to use the word seed because it works better, but it's the same thing. Between your seed and her seed, he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. You shall bruise his heel. There's the promise. God didn't need to promise. He could have pressed power button and rebooted. But instead, he leaned in and he promised. And he, he introduced something here that is absolutely amazing. He said, you know what, I'm going to take care of the sin problem. I'm going to deal with the serpent. But actually, it's not going to be uh, just me from a distance. It's going to be the seed of the woman. It's by a human that the problem is going to be solved. And I, I think Adam and Eve must have been scratching their heads, thinking, well, there's only two of us, and we've not got a particularly good record. How are you going to get such a human? I wonder if the serpent kind of mocked inside like there's no way. I've already proven that I can defeat humans. But God is God and he is not going to be mocked. He is not going to be replaced. And he leans in and he says, I've got a plan. And it's the seed of the woman. I'm going to give a deliverer to deal with sin. And it's going to be a human. The story goes on. And as you walk your way through the story of Genesis, you discover that the earth fills with people. And the people are all shaking their fists at God. There's absolute outright rebellion against God. And it is hideous to the point where God says, you know what? I've got to deal with this. I've got to wipe this world clean. And so it's, you might think, well, there's a reboot. It's not. But he does flood the earth and wipe out the entire human race except for eight people. Noah, his wife, three sons, their wives. And then after they come out of that uh, rescue ship that he provided for them, he gives more of his promise. So the the sin, promise of the seed. Uh, Sin again, in a greater worldwide way, more promise. This time he says, you know what? It's not just going to be a human that's going to deal with this. It's going to come from one of the sons of Noah. And it's very kind of a cryptic little verse that he gives. But he says that it's in the tents of Shem, which is one of the three sons of Noah, that he, God, is going to dwell. Now we're scratching our heads. How does that work? It's the human and it's God. And this human God is going to come in the line of Shem. Now, you, you might say, what's well, Shem? Uh, that's not us. I, I think most of us are Japhethites, for what it's worth. There's also the Ham descendants and all the nations that came from them. But the Shem line is what gives us eventually the Semitic races. Ever heard the word Semitic? Jewish? that part of the Shem line. It's going to be Jewish. Let's use a simple term for it. The man who is going to deliver us from sin is going to come from the line of the Semites, from ultimately from this Jewish line, and God is revealing this stuff and letting the enemy throw everything that he can against it. If you fast forward a little bit further, God said, "Okay, go fill the world, and instead they came together and they built a tower in rebellion against God to make a name for themselves. There's a pattern emerging here. When there's sin, where you expect God to just deal with it in a kind of a harsh way, instead he gives more promise. He called a man called Abram. He was an idol-worshipping pagan. thing special about Abram. special was that God chose him. And God said to him, and let me just read this to you, Genesis 12. And he made him a promise. He said, I'm going to make your name great. All these people are trying to make a name for themselves, but I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and anyone who curses you or dishonors you, I will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why does God give? It's just that kind of God that we're talking about. Number, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your seed... I will give this land. And so Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so there's sin and God promises the seed. There's sin and God promises to come and and dwell in the midst. There's sin and God makes another promise about the seed. It's going to be from the line of Abram. And so Abram's like, well, my wife's really old. And there's this whole story and he comes up with a plan in his own strength. And God says, no, no, please don't do that. You trust me. And Abraham was saying, well, I've got a son now by this kind of other arrangement that I came up with. And God said, no, 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 I'm going to give you a son by your wife. (laughs) Are you kidding? My wife, she's really kind of old. And God provides a second son, and it's through him that the promise comes, Isaac. The seed promise is repeated to Isaac. Now, Isaac was nothing special. He repeated all the same sins, the same mistakes that his father Abraham had done. And yet God appeared to him and said, I'm going to bring the seed through you abraham isaac and then he's got two boys and guess what it's not the obvious first born strong one it's the second born kind of mother's boy and and that's the one that god chooses to give the seed through now jacob was worse than abraham and isaac put together nothing godly about him at all but god promised that the seed is coming through you jacob jacob had 12 boys it's not going to be the firstborn. That pattern's becoming obvious, right? And so second, no, second was a disaster too. Not the third. It's the fourth. So we've had second son, second son, fourth son, Judah. And he's no rosy chap either. I mean, he's got issues. And God works with Judah. And then you come to the end of Genesis. And at the end of Genesis, we're told that it's in the line of Judah that the king is going to come. The king, yeah, the king, who is the man, who is God, who is going to deliver us from sin. And God just keeps on giving his promise as we keep on sinning, we sin, God graciously gives promise. We sin some more and God graciously gives more promise. And it's like a red ribbon that traces its way through the Old Testament. And, and you fast forward almost a thousand years and you're wondering, okay, where is the specification coming? And the nation doesn't do too well. They, they live in, in rebellion against God. They fail and they fail and they fail. And when it really kind of comes to a head in their rejection of God, guess what he does? He leans in and he picks somebody. And so a prophet called Samuel went to visit Jesse and said, Jesse, I need to see your sons. And he said, these are my boys, seven of them. And he's like, wow, they're impressive. Any more? These are my seven boys, he said. Yeah, but are there any more? Well, yeah, there's there's the unimpressive one. He's just a a young and he's out with the sheep. Bring him in. And David walked in and Samuel poured oil on his head and anointed him and said, this man is going to be king. So David grew up as king. And another prophet came to him. And David had just committed a a terrible sin. Actually, forgive me, he's about to commit a terrible sin. And the prophet comes to him and David is is kind of the king of a nation that's been sinning for a thousand years and he's about to commit the worst sin you can imagine. And the prophet comes to him and says, you know what, God's going to build you a house and your seed is going to sit on the throne. And there's the seed promise again. And it's now in the line of David and God just keeps on revealing. We could show the slide At this point, it just keeps on revealing more and more as we go on. The seed of the woman from Shem, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Judah, of David. And ultimately, we get to Jesus. And that line of the seed promise is the promise that began right back at the beginning. And it traces its way through the Old Testament all the way until the arrival of Jesus. As we finish, let me just read to you a couple of verses from the book of Galatians. Galatians was written after Jesus had come and died and raised uh, back to life and gone back to heaven. And a few, uh, 20 years later, just under 18, 16 years later, the letter to the Galatians was written. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to some Christians and he's explaining the story. He's explaining God's plan. He says in uh, 3 verse 8, he says, The scriptures, the Bible, foreseeing that God would save the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Way back in the beginning, God preached good news. You go further down, verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, plural, but, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. And so Christ came and Christ died uh, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations, to all the families of the earth, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And you turn over the page into chapter 4. In Galatians four four, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. We'll talk about that next week. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, which includes daughters, but it's a better title. Uh, Sons have more privileges in that culture, so you want to be a son if you can. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, that is Daddy, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God's plan from the very beginning, and we can trace it all the way through as we wend our way through the thousands of years of biblical history. God's plan was never thwarted. It was barely even threatened with all the forces of sin and death and hell against him. God just continued to reveal his plan all the way through the promise of the coming seed. You see, here's the thing. The most important question we can ever get an answer to is, which God is God? What is God like? And the Bible reveals to us that God, the true God, is a giving God. If it weren't for the fact that by nature, at the very core of who he is, he's a giving God, if it weren't for that, there would have been no creation. If it weren't for the fact that God is a giving God, he would never have rescued us. But instead we sinned and we rebelled and we threw everything we could against him. God leaned forward and he gave. He gave a promise, and at the right time he gave his son. God gave the most treasured thing that he had, he gave his son for us. Jesus came and he gave his life. For us, He went all the way to the cross and He died the death that we deserved so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could receive new hearts that would love God, so that we could receive back the promised Holy Spirit and be brought back into relationship with God, which is what we were created for in the first place. It was God's plan, and that God's promise worked all the way through that, and it worked because He gives. He gives, He gives. And he gives again, the father gave the son, the son gave his life so that we could receive from God, the spirit so that we could receive the privilege of what Jesus has always had to be a child of God, to be able to speak to his father with the total intimacy of a child on its father's lap. As Jesus addresses the father and just calls him Abba, because of God's promise, we have that privilege. On Father's Day, the greatest father is the father, God the father, who gives, who gives even when we rebel, who gives even when we sin, who gives even when we shake our fists in his face and live in rebellion. He gives, he gives his promise, he gives his son and the son comes and gives his life and we've been given the privilege of calling God dad. That's a Father's Day privilege for every one of us. No matter what our earthly father was like or is like, we have a perfect heavenly father who gives. And we can call him dad. That's the promise. It winds its way through scripture. Next week, we're going to think about the preparation. All that was going on in anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. But this week, let me encourage you. Take time to enjoy creation. Take time to enjoy relationships. Take time even to enjoy work if you have the privilege of having work. Recognizing that God gave all that. And it's only as we're brought back into relationship with him that all of those things can be satisfying. That all of those things can have value even when sin seems to mess it all up. We have a God who gives. Let's give him thanks. Right now. Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you so much that we, because of Jesus, can come to you and call you our Abba, our Daddy. We thank you for that privilege. And we pray that this week we would be aware not only of the sin and the mess and the the frustration of life, but make us aware of the richness of your creation of your beautiful, perfect plan that is only experienced fully when from free hearts we love you. We love you, Lord. We love you, Father, because of Jesus. I pray that over these next three weeks, as we look at the Bible and think about its big story, that the story would grip us and that you would draw us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.